Good morning, everybody. Uh, this week, we're starting a new series here at Revolution on the book of 1 Peter, which is one of the circular letters that's shared among the early churches of the first century and which are now preserved for us as descendants of those churches in the New Testament of the Bible today. Um, if you have a Bible around and you're looking for 1 Peter, um, you're going to be able to find it after the letter that is written by Jesus' half-brother James and before the letters that are written by the Apostle John, who also wrote one of the Gospels. Now, the reason that you're going to find 1 Peter in that spot is because it gets kind of lumped in with all of the letters that are written by the other guys, which is to say it's a letter by somebody other than Paul, who's the primary author of the New Testament epistles. Now, two quick and interesting things that you might not know about why the New Testament of your Bible is organized in the way that it is. First, you should know that it's not organized chronologically, which is what you might expect as you read through it. Instead, it's actually organized by genre and by author. Thus, the Gospels, or the stories about the life of Jesus, come together at the beginning. And then there's the history, which is the book of Acts. And then there are the epistles or the letters, which are grouped by author, starting with Paul, and then including James and Peter and John. And then finally, at the end, you have an apocalypse, which is a first century literary genre that feels very strange to us today, but one which was actually fairly common at the time that it was written. So that's thing number one. The, the books in the New Testament were organized by genre and by author. And then there's thing number two. Now, thing number two is that within those groupings, they are again not organized chronologically, which is what you might expect, but instead they're organized kind of strangely by length. Thus, Paul's longest letter, which is the letter to the Romans, comes first, even though it's probably something he wrote later in his ministry, and his shortest letter, which is a letter called Philemon, goes last. Um, now, this can actually get really confusing at a variety of points, perhaps most notably in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, which are actually written in the reverse order um, of how they're presented here, but of course they're being presented in order of length, and 1st John, though it's the third letter, is the longest. So, anyways, all this is, uh, this has nothing at all to do with your spiritual formation, I realize, but hey, the more you know, um, and I thought I'd seize this opportunity to, to teach you a little something. And all of that is also to say that the letter that we're going to be looking at over the next six weeks, which is called 1 Peter, is not the first letter that Peter ever wrote, um, nor is it the first letter written to somebody named Peter, but rather it is the longest of the two letters that we have, which can be reasonably connected to the person of Simon Peter. And Simon Peter, we know, was first a fisherman, along the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and then he spent time as a disciple of Jesus during his initial ministry. And then finally, he becomes a leader of the early Christian church, first in Jerusalem and then ultimately in Rome, where he becomes the first pope, interestingly enough. So all of this gets us to the book, right? It gets us to the book of 1 Peter, Peter in our Bible. And it also tells us who Peter is, but it doesn't answer the, the big questions, which are, who is Peter writing to? 
Why is he writing to them? And what is it that he has to say? And perhaps equally important to those questions, what can we, as people reading this letter some 2,000 years after it was written, what can we learn from this letter about how to live and how to grow as Christians now? If the epistles are these tethers that we have to the vision and the hope of the church in the, in the years of its foundation, which is what I believe, that there are these tethers to the vision and hope of the original church. How can this letter shape what we are still, as a church, in the process of becoming? To get to the answers to these questions, I want to say a bit about what we're calling this series. This series is titled Nomads, and our hope is that this word, nomad, can guide the conversations that are, that are going to come over the next month or so. Um, to get into that conversation, I wanted to start by pointing out that um, you may have heard that a few weeks ago, the Academy Awards recognized a movie called Nomadland as the best picture of our pandemic year 2020. Um, if you haven't seen Nomadland, I would definitely recommend it. It's on Hulu, and I thought it was quite lovely. Um, there's also a lot of scenery from Badlands National Park in it, which is maybe my very favorite place in the whole world. So you should watch it, if only for, for the, pretty, the pretty landscapes. But nonetheless, um, to summarize a bit of what the movie is about, um, it's about this woman named Fern, who is in the process of discovering why it is that she has chosen to live the way that she does. And the order of those words is important, so I'm going to say it again because it's so critical even for us this morning. Fern is in the process of discovering why it is that she has chosen to live the way that she does. In the movie, Fern does this by moving from place to place in the American West. And she sleeps in this camper van. And as she travels around the country, she meets other people who live like she does. And she learns their whys for why they are living in the way that they're living. And while Fern is talking to these other people, many of whom are not played by actors in the movie, but by real people who, who live nomadically in the country, as Fern hears their whys, we can kind of see her in the movie doing a sort of window shopping uh, in a way for her own reason for why she's doing what she's doing. She has to kind of consider, am I living this way because I'm poor? Am I living this way because I'm rebelling against something, against society? Am I living this way because there's maybe nowhere else I fit in? Am I living this way because I'm grieving? These are kind of the questions she starts to wrestle through. And the movie kind of takes you know, it's an exploration of that wrestling. And I think there are two things about that setup, about that, that construction of an idea here about what it is to be a nomad that can help us today kind of get into Peter's letter. And the first is this. Fern, in the movie, is a nomad before she knows why she is a nomad. She's not debating how to live from some high perch and then with her decision firmly made, jumping down into the thick of things in her life. And the truth is that this feels exactly right 
to me. And it also seems like something that's helpful for us to discover about ourselves. Very few of us get where we are because we set out from the beginning to get there. I think that that most of us, I know I, I for example, I think most of us are more like Fern. And the truth is that we're trying to understand our whys while we're in the middle of living them out. So that's maybe helpful thing number one um, here. We, like the church that Peter is writing to, are already in the middle of things, trying to figure them out. The second helpful thing is that we tend to see ourselves more clearly through the eyes of other people. That's what happens in this movie. It's one of these like rules for living nomadically, and it's going to shape our conversation to do. It is easier to see ourselves, more clearly anyway, through the eyes of other people. Now that is not to say that other people are always right about who and what we are. They're not. But it is to say that like Fern, if we don't allow ourselves to be known by other people and to let the people that we know challenge us, the truth is we tend not to think much about who we are at all. Left on our own, we tend not to think about who we are at all. And I think left on our own, we certainly don't change. Which means then that it's relationships that force opportunities for growth. The paradox of being a, a nomad in the movie Nomadland is that the people outside of culture, these nomads who seem adrift, are doing more deliberate work to understand themselves and their whys than the people inside the culture are doing. And the implied criticism is that settling actually makes it harder to understand the anchors and the tethers that give life meaning. And I bring all of this up because the reason we're going into the series at this point in time is because I think that right now we, like Fern, are in this moment where we're discovering where we are while we're in the middle of a life that we could never have expected. We're, it's 2021. We're 15, 16 months almost into a pandemic. None of us knew we were going to be here. And we're here in the middle of this trying to figure out what still matters to us, what's most important to us. And I think that perhaps this moment of, of nomadic living gives us an opportunity not to rush back to how things were, but instead to explore who we are and what is anchoring our hope. As we work through the series over the next six weeks, this is the question that I want us to keep at the center of our conversations together. The question is, what might happen if we stay restless together? What might happen if we stay restless together? So with that question in mind, let's get started today. So Peter's letter begins like this. He writes, from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, 
according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So, this is an address line, right? What in the world can we see here? Well, first, Peter tells us who he's writing to. He's writing to the churches that are dispersed through Asia Minor in the area of modern-day Turkey. And this actually matters a tremendous amount because it tells us a crucially important thing about his audience, which is that they are Gentile Christians. They're not Jewish Christians, they're Gentile Christians. And that single fact is going to radically shape the ways that we think about the rest of this letter. Imagine for a moment, to kind of get there, imagine for a moment what it's like to become a nomad, not because you left your home, but because something about you changed. An example. I remember when Meredith and I first became parents. At that time, we were in our mid-20s, and we had this really active friend group and these close relationships in our church. But almost nobody else in our social circle had children yet. And when Meredith was pregnant, there was this running joke in our friend group about how much I was in denial about how things were going to change once our daughter was born. I, and it's all true, I kept insisting that nothing was really going to be any different, that we'd still hang out, that baby Evangeline would just basically sort of tag along in our normal life, which we'd keep living the way that we were living it. But of course, that's not what happened. When Evie came along, we became somehow alien in our culture with a different schedule and with new and different experiences. And even though nobody really meant for it to happen, the truth is that our sense of belonging changed quite a bit. Now, similarly, the people that Peter is writing to have made a decision. They have become Christians, and that decision has rewritten the rules about where they fit in. They're not ethnically or culturally other, but they've chosen to be religiously other. And this choice to be religiously other has serious consequences for them. Remember that the biggest debate in the early church of the first century has to do specifically with this issue of circumcision, or more precisely, this question of whether or not male Gentiles, like the ones Peter are writing to, who are not circumcised at birth, need to become circumcised when they convert to Christianity. Now, there is no question that this issue would be one of the first things that a newly converted Gentile Christian man is going to be facing. It's something that everybody's going to be thinking about. Everybody who knows him is going to be wondering about whether or not he does or doesn't do this. And even worse, it's not something, not to be too graphic here, but this question of circumcision isn't something where the answer to what he does or doesn't do is going to be immediately visible to everybody. So that means whatever happens with circumcision in him, the questions about it aren't going to go away. The gossip about it isn't going to go away. And so consider how this might affect a Gentile Christian's sense of home or their sense of belonging in their community. To become Christian is to immediately become a joke, to become a mystery in your own community. So that's at least the situation for some of the people that Peter's writing to. 
these folks who have suddenly become outsiders in their own homes, then the question is, here in this, these first couple lines, what is it that Peter says to them? Well, he says three big things. He calls them elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ. First, then, he acknowledges how they're feeling. That's how he starts, right? He says, you feel like you have become exiles in your faith because of what your faith entails. So he's saying right out of the gate, I get it. You feel like an exile. But he also is saying to them, even though you feel like an exile, take heart in that. Because what you're experiencing is what he calls an election that God knew about beforehand. So even though you have been displaced, know this, that displacement does not mean disappearing, which is how it can feel. God saw you before you converted to Christianity. He sees you now, and he will continue to see you in your future. You are not invisible. Next, Peter reminds them that this journey they're on, which again feels like exile, isn't a punishment. It's something that we, given the context of the series, might call nomadic. Even more, it's through this particular journey that the people that Peter's writing to are what he says, or the way he puts it, is that they are being sanctified. Now, a quick sidebar here. If a person who is Jewish hears the phrase sanctification of the Spirit, what are they thinking of, especially if it's connected to the concept of a journey? Well, the answer from their history is going to be pretty clear. The time that the Spirit of God led them through a process of sanctification in Jewish history was in the exodus from Egypt and the subsequent wandering in the desert of Sinai. That's the moment in their story when the Spirit of God goes before them as this pillar of fire and this cloud of smoke, and it leads them for 40 years on a journey that at the time may have seemed aimless, but one which does the work in their story of refining them like a fire does in order to prepare them to enter the promised land. This story of their sanctifying journey with the Spirit is an essential part of their cultural identity. So the question is, what is Peter saying, right? Well, he's saying what you're experiencing isn't exile. It's not being cast away from something. What you're experiencing is a desert wandering, a journey of sanctification. And moreover, I, Peter, who am myself a Jew, I am intentionally connecting you, Gentile Christians, into the critical story of my people's history about how they became a people, which means that what I am doing, if I am Peter, is I am grafting you into the Jewish story, which again means that you're not exiled away. You're on a journey in, a journey home, a journey where the outcome is a promised land. Then, Finally, just in these, these first couple verses, we might ask, what's the purpose of this journey of sanctification? And what Peter says here is that the purpose that it is for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. 
And that last part might catch us off guard a bit. That would be reasonable. But again, it matters so much from a Jewish context because it's not incidental. This, this phrase, this idea of sprinkling blood has a very specific referent. And it comes from specifically this moment when the blood of a sacrifice, of a sacrificial animal, is taken by the high priest and then sprinkled deliberately on the Ark of the Covenant. When the blood of the sacrifice is sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, who cares? Well, think this through. It is to say then that the blood is being sprinkled on the place that God is said to dwell among his people. That's what the ark is. It's the seat of God. So what then is being implied here if what Peter's saying is that the blood of the sacrifice, the blood of Christ, is being sprinkled not on the ark, but being sprinkled on you, Gentile Christians? Well, what it means is that these nomads are where God dwells that they may be homeless in their own culture, but they themselves have become the home of God. So, these Gentile nomads are right out of the gate, seen by God, not invisible, grafted into God's story, and people within whom God dwells. And that is a lot of company. That's a lot of reassurance for what is functionally the address line of a letter. It also sets the stage for the things that Peter is going to go on to say. Peter wants to tell these Christians in his letter, these Christians whose faith is costing them so many of their former anchors of security, he wants to say to them, you're going to be okay. God isn't just taking from you, which is how it might feel, Your faith is worth more than its costs. In fact, you will find greater comfort and greater security here than what you've given up. Now, before he gets all the way into all of that, there are these two other points that we need to explore this week if we're going to look at, uh, if we're going to sort of finish off looking at these introductory verses in the letter. And the next one has to do with what kind of hope it is that these new Christians can now rest in. Because he's saying you can rest in a hope, but what is that hope? Um, And how does it work in this new sort of culturally nomadic way you're living? Well, to continue in the text, Peter writes this. He writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Now, I highlighted a few spots here, which I think can guide us through the rest of our passage today. 
Now, the first thing that we find here is that this new journey these Christians are on, which is a journey that isn't taking them to places physically, but dramatically affecting where they fit in socially, this new journey is one anchored in what Peter calls a living hope. Now, last week, Paul McGrew gave us a great metaphor for this idea. In discussing Psalm 23, he pointed out that the Hebrew word that we often translate as hope means literally a cord or a tether. Paul suggested that we might think of hope then as something similar to the charging cords that we use for cell phones. It's only something useful if it connects us to something that fills us back up. So what then does the cord of the hope Peter is talking about connect to? Well, he says that we have a living hope. He identifies our our anchor here as a living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Specifically that, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what this means is that, to put it as plainly as we possibly can, our hope for this life is something that is anchored in Jesus's singular demonstration that this life is not the end. Because Jesus comes back from the dead, death has no finality to it anymore. It's still going to happen, but it doesn't